This episode of Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. Account Insight helps you deliver targeted, tailored ads to high-value companies because today's B2B buyer decides digitally and in teams of up to 40 people. Account Insight helps you solve the problem of marketing to whole accounts, not just to one person. That's why smarter B2B marketers use account-based advertising. Founded by former WPP executives with extensive experience building and delivering B2B solutions, several friends of the show and leading B2B agencies use Account Insight to deliver targeted ads. You can find out more at accountinsight.ai. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Paul Frampton is the president and CEO of CBE, a next generation service consultancy at the nexus of media, technology and data working with just some of the biggest brands in the world. You may have heard of the likes of Mitsubishi, Go Compare, SAP Concur, just to name a few. He was formerly CEO of Havas Group, which contained five media agencies. And get this, the reason he's built such a stellar career is not because he's money motivated or he's impressed with the title and the trappings of success, but actually because in his early career in agencies, he was disgusted by the aggressive, misogynistic, chest-beating culture of media agencies at the time. And he decided that the only way that he could actually change things was by becoming a leader of one of these companies and actually changing things from the top down. Just a, a fascinating perspective and ambition from someone who was so young to make that decision for the rest of their lives, essentially. And fast forward a few years, he actually becomes the CEO of Havas, only one of the biggest holding groups in the world. Just a, just a fascinating conversation. I was furiously taking notes all the way throughout. You could probably hear my pen on the paper. Uh, this episode should have been about nine or 10 hours long just because of the depth of the conversation. I had a ton of questions we weren't able to get to. He's just one of the most knowledgeable and interesting guests we've ever had on the show. If you're interested in such things as how and where brands should spend their money these days, how to understand advertising's effectiveness, inclusion and diversity, and just like so much more, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So stick around until the end when Thomas Lint and I discuss Paul's interview in some depth. Make sure you stick around for that. Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Paul Frampton. My special guest today is Paul Frampton. He is a customer and people-focused tech and marketing leader. He is the president for marketing consultancy and agency Control the Exposed, CBE, which advises brands on media operating models, MarTech, data strategy, and right housing, alongside providing data-driven activation and execution for all addressable media channels. He is also the host of the fantastic podcast, time for a reset. Go and check that out. By the way, listen, like, subscribe. He was formerly CEO of Havas UK and Ireland with 950 people and revenue of 85 million. He became EMEA CEO for disruptive B2B, B2C travel tech startup, High Inc, formerly Tink Labs, backed by Foxconn and SoftBank. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Paul Frampton, Welcome to Agency Deal Masters. Thank you so much. Pleased to be here. Super excited that we've been able to get this back in the diary. It's been in the diary for quite some time. 
and I've been chasing you down for a very long time. So I'm glad that you've finally said yes. And we've we're, we're here. We're here. We and are. We will do it today. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your background before we talk about all of the other technical stuff. So you you actually stumbled into the world of media because initially you wanted to be a journalist, if I understand that right. How do you go from the world of journalism to the world of media and marketing? Yeah, that's right, Nathan. So um, I did, uh, I was a real romantic. I did English um, lit when I went to university. So I was not the token man on a course really with women, but certainly I was in the minority um, doing an English lit course. Um, and I had I had a love for everything from Chaucer to Shakespeare to Tony Morrison and, um, and and kind of more modern kind of beat stuff from the US. So I I loved I love words and therefore I thought, well, what's the most obvious thing to do if you like words is to go into a career where you spend your life wordsmithing, which was journalism. Right. And then I and then I I realized that to get to the top of journalism was very difficult and um it would probably take quite a long time and you started um you you started really really at the bottom of the pile but i i did do some while i was uh, in sick form and stuff i did some local journalism um, and quite enjoyed that but i had a little bit of exposure to what a nuj course would be like and i just just looked at it and some of the people that were on it and some of the people were teaching it and i didn't it didn't feel like it was me hmm. um so i just picked up a copy of the guardian and looked in the media section um, because media was kind of that broad sense of where journalism was. And I found uh, actually an ad, a one-by-one ad for an, uh, a grad um, role at OMD. Had no idea what OMD was. Turned up to an interview, met a guy called Tim McCluskey, um, who's pretty who's pretty famous, infamous in the, the media industry. Yeah, sure. um, and he interviewed me smoking a fag with his feet on the table um, and started to explain to me what media was. I thought I was going to be doing something more like at the BBC. And then he explained to me what a media agency was. Um, and I didn't get that job, but they told me to go to another agency that had another three-letter acronym, MPG. Right. They said, they're hiring grads. Why don't you go and have a conversation with them? Um, and yeah, I, I was quite intrigued because it was about, it was creative. It wasn't just about words, but words played a big role in it. Storytelling played a big role in it, and I was like, "This looks, this looks pretty interesting." Um, and mm. so I did, I did, I did a panel interview. I had to do a whole kind of quiz, and I remember specifically there was one question that I didn't have a clue about, which was, "What is a TVR?" Um, and not knowing, I thought I'll just try and be funny, and so I said, "It's a, it's a car I'd like to own once I've been in the ad industry." <laughs> successfully for a few years um and it, it, it appeared that the fact that i didn't know it was a tv rating which seems completely obvious now in hindsight actually went down well with them they thought well you've got you've got some initiative and you're a little bit bolshy you can He's think creative. on your feet yeah exactly so it actually worked in my favor <laughs> and I, I got the job and i didn't well i nearly looked back after a year but i never really looked back okay so, so being a little, a little sarky and a little bit sort of brave can can be good for your career. Really, really, really Apparently interesting so. <laughs> for any young people <laughs> listening. Uh, don't don't blag it on your first interview for any any young people listening. By the way, so so let's talk about that time actually uh, at MPG because you, you you know you you mentioned the culture. Well, you alluded to the culture there a little bit because your boss at the time was 
or the person that interviewed you was smoking a cigarette or with his feet on the table. And that kind of talks a little bit about the culture yeah. that was around at that time. So you worked at MPG for about 10 years before joining Havas. And you say, quote, the early days being in the media agency were hard-edged, hardworking, and very, very hard, like DiCaprio's movie, The Wolf on Wall Street. You really hated the culture there. How did that experience inform the kind of leader that you wanted to be and the kind of culture that you wanted to work in when you eventually became CEO of Havas? So... I, w- I wouldn't say I hated all aspects of the culture. I mean, I, I loved the cre- creativity and I loved the fact that it was quite, it was very dynamic and young and slightly informal. But the people that were, were in roles of authority behaved very much like they were in roles of authority. And they treated people like me, an exec at the bottom of the pile, they treated mm. us like, I won't say the word, but they treated us like something on the bottom of their shoe. Yeah. Right. And, I remember being dragged into the office at 5, 6 a.m. because something didn't add up in a spreadsheet um, for competitive to give to a client. And it was quite a fear culture. Um, like if you didn't deliver, you, you'll you be thrown out of your ear or you'll be punished in front of people. There was also like this buying culture, this media buying culture, which came more from the traditional media world where it was all about haggling and a bit like the Wolf of Wall Street, to be honest. It was mm. about... Who can get the best price for a page in um, a certain mag or a kind of a 20 double on the front page of the Telegraph? It was all about who can win. And look, I mean, I'm a very competitive person. I'm very results orientated. So I like winning, but it didn't feel like a healthy culture. It didn't feel like one where people were allowed to be their best selves. And it felt like one where it was very masculine. It was very driven by banter. And if you didn't fit in that, then you were on the outside of it. And to me, a culture in a creative business should be inclusive, should be creative, and should encourage people to bring their true selves to to, to work and to every meeting. But if you didn't fit in with that way of working, and it was a very masculine, very Mm. dominant patriarchy type culture, which I've spent a lot of my career trying to work against once I did get into a role of authority um and yeah I just yeah it it just it just didn't sit right with me Nathan Mm, really interesting so so then the interesting thing is that you set yourself a goal of becoming more senior in the agency so that you could actually affect some change because you realize that being at the bottom of the pile (laughs) disposable really wasn't going to get you very far Mm. so the fascinating thing with your career is that you actually said to yourself look in order for me to affect some change here this is the kind of culture that I want but I need to become senior enough in order to affect that change right so talk us through that decision making process and then sort of how your career unfolded from that point yeah so yeah this is this was a pretty pivotal moment for me and I notice it more now than I probably did at the time because I was pretty young like I was in that my, my my I was probably what twenty one, so I I didn't really know I really didn't know what purpose was if I'm honest. I mean yeah. everyone talks about what's your purpose these days and what's the company's purpose, so, and and I guess I found my purpose at that point in time without really knowing that that's what it was, which was I I haven't joined a company to stay at the bottom. I haven't joined a company to work in a culture that I don't think is the right culture, but. To the point you made, I have zero influence on that culture where I am today. 
So I, I just set myself um, the goal of elevating myself to places where I could be more part of the conversation and then ultimately influence. And then obviously beyond that, once you've influenced it, actually start to lead the conversation differently. And That's amazing. At 21 years old. Yeah, that led, that led to me kind of going, okay, I need to go from an exec to being a planner buyer. I need to go from being a planner buyer to a group planner buyer. Then I needed to go to, uh, there was another role I did before head of digital. I then jumped to head of digital. I wrote the job spec for head of digital, actually. I wrote my own job spec for my CEO at the time for the managing director role, because ironically, they hadn't had a managing director for a year and a half. And I wrote that spec and said, I think you need this. The first time I went to him, he said, no, we don't. And I don't think you're ready for it. And I, I went, okay, well, what do I need to be ready for it? He gave me some feedback. I went back and worked very purposefully on those things. So I guess I've always had a plan, Nathan. I've always, I always know a destination that I'm heading to. And I think that's a big part of leadership is you've got to know what port you're sailing to and then come hell or high water, pirates, tidal waves, mm. whatever it might be, you've got to make sure that you keep on track to where you're trying to go as an individual or as a company. And I think that is one of the hardest things for humans to do because there's so many things that take us off course that prevent us or get in the way of us or bring new barriers to us doing this. And of course, as humans, we're vulnerable mm. and we we sometimes feel like we want to give up and then we get off of that path but i've always i've always known that i had a certain path that i wanted to go on and then to be fair i got to it and i was able to affect a lot more leadership and and now to me it's more it's less about getting to a senior position it's more about as a result of having a voice as a leader and having a decent following on social media and being hopefully known for someone that actually cares about talent and culture and inclusivity I now use that voice to try and drive change and make not just the ad industry, just just to try and make things better. It's it's really inspiring and um, quite unique, actually, from such a young age to be so purpose driven, to have such a strong reason why that ultimately shapes the rest of your career and informs what you're doing, uh, what you've done since and mapped out your career <laughs> and all of the you know the logical career progressions along the way and kind of what you're doing now it's it's super fascinating so as you say with a big enough reason why you can kind of you know what do they say with any you know as long as you have a big enough reason why you can deal with any pretty much any how and i think that's that's what you've um you've communicated in your career so from those early days of sort of mid 90s where the culture was wasn't great to be honest there's been a lot of talk in recent years, especially 2020, about inclusivity, about diversity. You call yourself a um, a feminist, which we'll talk about a little bit later on as well. So you're, I know that I follow a lot of your work on social and you're a huge advocate of diversity and inclusion, especially women's rights in, in, in the workplace. Talk about how you feel the culture has changed within agencies over the last sort of 20 years or so. Where are we now and how much further do we have to go? Good question. So I think there's been a lot of positive progress. Uh, we have a significant amount more female CEOs sitting at the top of agencies, whether that be media or creative. Actually, more media than creative. I think creative agencies still have a way to go. Um, the percentage of creative directors, ECDs, that are female is still pathetic. 
Um, I, I don't think it's probably more than 15%, which is total nonsense when you consider that females are generally the core target audience for a lot of advertising um, because they tend to be the key decision maker when it comes to buying for the household, even buying cars and buying property. So why is it that you have most men leading creative decisions and we have too many white men leading the creative department as well, right? When you've got a wonderful fruit salad of different cultures and different backgrounds in this country, yet we still have this issue. So I feel like we've moved forward, but I still feel like there's so much, um, so much further to go. And sadly, I think the pandemic, not just in the agency world or creative industries world, but just generally in society in the UK, the pandemic has hit women a lot harder than it's hit men. Hmm. Women have had to either um, juggle working at home and looking after kids when they haven't been able to send their kids into kind of primary or secondary or nursery um, schools. They've also had issues around flexibility that men haven't had to deal with. And more women have lost their job or been made redundant than men have during this period. Because you know what? We still live in a patriarchy, a world where Mm. men men lead and like i heard this term fairly recently that i didn't know called hegemonic um hegemonic masculinity which is this concept that men continue to legitimize that men lead and are dominant in society um and you see it you see it on linkedin right if a woman posts something about leadership you'll get a bunch of idiotic men who just literally attack that woman just because they want to show that they have a that they believe they have a, a more um, solid perspective because they've been in a leadership role for longer mm. or because they're a man or whatever it is. So mm. I, I still feel like, and I know this because I talk to, a, I, I mentor and I talk to a lot of women, women still feel unequal in terms of pay. Women still feel unequal in terms of um, promotions and support and sponsorship and women, sadly, all face some form of harassment. And harassment in the ad industry is still really, really bad. Um, part of what I'm doing these days is running a thing called Yes All Men, which was a response directly to the Not All Men movement that came out of the Sarah Everard tragedy, where a bunch of men went, oh, it's not us, we're really good men. It's like, guys, that is this is all of our problem, right? Because all men mm. have at some point created this problem and men as a result of being in a more dominant position have made things tougher for women and have validated that kind of being able to go and chat up or kind of ask a woman to go to bed and even if she says no convince her to say yes all of those things have just been inbuilt in the way that men have been brought up and I think that has created so many problems that are still there's still a residue of it within the workplace and within society. Mm. And then, and then of course, on top of that, you've got issues that just haven't had enough airing, like kind of the whole kind of race issue and the BAME issue. I mean, I, I know, and I'm sure you, you would agree with it, that like by throwing BAME, throwing all of those different backgrounds and colours and cultures mm. together, it's, it, it's really disrespectful because you're going to get, whereas you want to be talked to as an individual and feel like you mm. belong and the ad industry is really bad at kind of doing belonging and kind of you look at the, the statistics for what people do call BAME and they're pathetic. I mean, you you would know that. And I'm sure mm. a lot of 
a lot of young black women, black men looking at this industry go, you know, this can't really be for me because there's not enough role models. I don't see enough people at the top of companies or even in the middle of companies that have been given chance and opportunity. And then, of course, on top of that, you've got the social diversity issue because advertising has always attracted people that come from uh, kind of upper middle class, private public school background. And that has that still is there. I read a statistic, um, I think it was a year ago, so it's still true. There's something like a third of senior management in agencies went to a went to a private school. Hmm. And I mean that's a that's a that's a that's a I mean there's nothing wrong with it in in it in its own right, but it creates a certain kind of culture where it's like this industry is for people that look like us, white, male, hmm. came from money, already had advantage. So what does it say to anybody looking at this industry? Like, well, this is not an industry where you can get in because there's too much nepotism, there's too much expectation that you already know enough about the industry before you've got into it. So sorry, that was a very long answer, but as you can see, it's something I'm quite <laughs> passionate about. I can see and there's there's so much there to unpack. Um, right. I'm, I'm almost regretting that I asked you the question. You almost, <laughs> a little bit depressed me. So so okay, we know the challenges are vast. They're huge. Um, we're making some progress. Probably not as fast as many what many people would like, but there is progress being made. I'm reading I'm reading Andy Narin's book at the moment. Lucky. Um, uh, what does he call it now? Uh, the the book on luck, and it's a fascinating yeah. book because you know he he talks about one of the things he talks about, especially in our industry, is like when you have diverse people working in a creative business, you perform better, Absolutely. right? The diverse perspectives that you're able to pour into the soup and 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 the ideas that are able to come out of that cauldron are vastly different to. Uh, you know a culture that is made up of the same sort of people from the same sorts of sorts of backgrounds i think once the penny drops that having an inclusive culture is actually better for business then i think more people will sort of it, it, you know it'll just become a, a no a no-brainer really and and he talks about you know not only diversity in terms of obviously race and gender yeah, but, but also disability neurodiversity and disability and ev- yeah, everything yeah, yeah, absolutely everything yeah. Um, you know, just, and especially in our industry, just, you know, in an ideas business, it just makes complete sense to have a diversity of perspectives from, you know, from different backgrounds. Um, yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts? No, I agree. I, I, I agree with you. However, again, there has been so many reports and I think gender has probably had more of them than any other uh, area. But if you look at the amount of reports from McKinsey, from, Accenture, from BCG, from universities, from Oxford. There's so many reports that show that if you have more women on your board, not just does your business is your business more productive, it actually grows faster, you are more profitable, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So the evidence, the evidence is there and has been repeated several times, if not a lot more times than that, over quite a long period, I would suggest. I don't think I don't think I think these reports have been done for over 10 years and yet still you have men at the top of businesses that refuse to change the way that they operate. And Mm. I think that is, I would like to believe in your utopian view that once people accept that they go, well, this is what we should do. But unfortunately human behavior doesn't always follow um, rational thought. 
Um, and it's a good point. I think that I'm hoping that COVID has been a bit of a bolt out of the blue in terms of workplace culture, not just include, but has woken people up to the fact that yes, you can have more flexibility and things are still great, but also by having remote interviews and bringing people in, there's potentially it's more open and flexible and inclusive for the type of people you hire because there are some people that when you expect them to be in a London office all the time and turn up looking a certain way, those biases come out that people have got in the industry. And I think that leads to to some of these issues. So I think we just need to, in every conversation that is ever had, ask ourselves, are we creating an inclusive enough conversation, an inclusive enough culture? Because we're, we're never doing enough. I mean, we can't, we, no one can say we're doing enough until you could sit back and say your entire workforce feels that they are treated fairly belong. and that yeah and they belong and belonging is a really big part of it you're right huge let's let's talk a little bit about controlled the exposed so you became president in 2019 yeah tell us a little bit about the problems that your clients have and and how do you typically solve them yeah so um so as you said, it's a fairly new business still. So I, as you said in the intro, I left Havas, came out of a big media group running it, was a little bit disillusioned with holding groups per se and their ability to adapt to two things. Well, actually three things. One, the fact that brands, our customers, were increasingly looking for more flexible and agile service models. And that's tough when you're in a big company that has always worked a certain way in any sector. Secondly, there was a new talent model that was emerging, which was more flexible, more agile, where you didn't force people to always be in an office. Um, and three, technology and digital and data were becoming a bigger part of making marketing more science-led and more kind of focused on, I guess, what I would call incrementality. So I was fortunate enough to get introduced after I was at a tech startup. So I did a tech startup thing for 18 months, as you mentioned learned scaling a company from about five, 10 people to 200 in Europe and learned a lot of things that I didn't learn in Havas. I, how to do things scrappily, how to do things that you build 80% and then iterate rather than trying to get to 100%, like done is better than perfect, that kind of model. And after I'd had those two experiences, I put them together. And what I really, what's really important to me is firstly, culture, <laughs> based on my whole belief in inclusivity that we just talked about, I put at the top of my list, number one, culture. Number two, I want to work for a disruptive business that's making things better. And then num number three, I want to work in a space that is genuinely at the cutting edge of how marketing is changing. And I was introduced to these guys um, at Goodway, which is a US um, agency that I'd not heard of at the time. And um, I started talking to them and they said, we've got this remote culture. We've been remote for 12 years, which... Obviously, these days, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, of course, everyone's remote. But like 12 years ago, yeah. pre-COVID, pre everyone sure. would have looked at you and gone, what, your entire <laughs> company's remote? Are you mad? You're yeah. in the agency world. No one can do that. You've got to be in the office in order to come up with ideas and sure. talk to each other and brainstorm because there's no way you can do that remotely. So that attracted me. Secondly, the kind of president of Goodway, Jay, um, had this vision about, turning the agency into a more of a consultancy model and helping marketeers take um, 
take marketing to the top of the board agenda. And I really liked that because I got into this business not because necessarily I love just media and marketing. I love the impact it has on clients' businesses. Um, and then thirdly, the, the way we were going to do that was going to be through helping brands to navigate the complexities of digital with data and technology and ad tech and martech and first party data, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially, CVE, which is easier to say than control versus exposed, I'll give you that. Um, CVE is like a hybrid of a consultancy agency with hands on keyboard kind of digital team and has engineers and data science scientists in it. So we basically fluidly adapt that model to different clients' needs. So we find that a lot of the time what a client needs is not someone to come and tell them how to spend their paid media money better straight away. It's to help them think about their conversion funnel hmm. or to help them think about what's the right operating model. Should I even use an agency or should I build this capability myself? Hmm. Or have I got the right measurement in place? I've added more and more investment to digital channels, but I kind of feel like, it's not all working and I'm spending too much with Google. I'm spending too much with Facebook. Am I spending enough outside of search and social? Those type of questions. So we, we often come in to go, okay, let's help you navigate those complex problems and give you answers to those complex problems. And because we've got engineering and data science and hands-on keyboard skills in search, social, programmatic, we can actually either help clients to embed people to actually do things differently in their own teams or run POCs against their current agencies to show how it can be done differently in a very independent, kind of non-black box way. Or we we come in just to do a project around measurement or attribution or in-housing. We leave a mm. client with it and then we exit. So it, it, it's deliberately designed to be very customer-centric and very focused on the current kind of operating model. Mm. Really fascinating. Okay, so... It's just set the scene for us then. So who do your clients tend to be? Do they tend to, because of the uh, solutions that you've just articulated, do your clients tend to come from certain industries or have certain uh, you know, products or challenges that they gravitate towards? And then in that context, you know, what's making them choose CVE over an Accenture or any of the other holding groups, maybe as, aside from... Uh, how expensive essentially essential yeah, are, yeah, but yeah. Like... yeah well, that definitely <laughs> features that definitely features right um so so to answer your to answer your first question um our two kind of probably largest clusters of clients are either big advertisers that are either in the kind of fmcg telco um or or kind of traditional kind of have been in traditional retail world and are moving towards a more digital model. So they're, they're going the Byron Sharp way of doing marketing, kind of saliency, top of the funnel, be everywhere, is not necessarily the right way to move forward because my CEO keeps telling me, well, all these D2C brands have launched and they seem to be doing marketing and growing market share, spending a fraction of what we're spending and doing it in a different way. Why? I think that's creating a lot of those questions. Mm. So those questions are coming down and that's giving us uh, a lot of complex problems to solve. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we're doing a lot of work with D2C brands who are excellent at performance marketing. So fantastic at search and social and conversion rate optimization and CAC to LTV ratios and very data and scientific. Mm. But they get to a point where 
they don't really know how to grow beyond that mm. and they don't know how to put the right measurement in place. So I would say those are our two kind of most consistent places where we operate and wh- why we get brought in or why we're slightly different to some of the big guys um, is what we, we, we focus, I suppose, a lot more on the how and the actionability of consulting. A lot of consulting, you, you'll often hear, yeah, great decks. They told us, gave us really concretely all of our problems. They took them, they heard us, and then they played it back to us. But then we got left with this PowerPoint and we didn't sure. know what to do with it. And we've picked up a lot of clients like that where right. we've taken a project off of McKinsey, for instance, and then we've helped a client work out how do you actually implement this. And the reason why is because we've got people that obviously have got all of the experience necessary. So we can embed those people in a client, mm. which is a consulting type model, or we can take it and we can use that expertise to advise them on the next step and the step towards actually realizing the cost savings or the value creation that the consultant might have told them they're going to get to because too often a management consultant will go we've looked at all of this you should do close down these three parts of the business launch this and invest in this and then they'll Mm -hmm. go this will generate an extra 10 million pounds for you over the next three years it's like okay great and the board goes yes absolutely that's what we need put it into the pay and l let's put it into build it into capex and everything else and opex and then then the question is, well, who's actually going to do that? Because the consultant's <laughs> exited because you're not going to pay the consultant to do it because they're too expensive. You can only afford sure. to have the consultant in for three, six, maybe 12 months to get to that answer. Um, so, yeah, our, our, our focus is a lot more actionable. I'm never going to say that we do anything near the sophistication of what the big management consultants do, right? Because they, they are superb and they own the C-level with the exception of the CMO. And I nearly went to work at a management consultancy after Havas actually because I was so impressed with how they were able to keep a very business orientated focused conversation when it came to marketing the challenge is they just still don't have all of the depths of talent and expertise to navigate the complexities of media and creative and everything else they're winning some stuff and then they're buying them they're they're buying it yeah I'm not saying they won't get there but they do have holes there's still holes Um, there are still gaps in their capability and there are still issues around price versus value um, and actionability around their strategy, from what I can tell. Really fascinating. So it, it sounds from, by what you've said that you're talking about really like the four P's of marketing, whereas, you know, media agencies historically or agencies historically have been criticized for just focusing on the promotional side of marketing, where you've got you know, you're ignoring price and yeah. place and, yeah. you know, everything else. And it seems as though, you've, you you know, you're looking at the four Ps and saying, right, if we need to change the pricing model, what does that look like? If we need to change how the distribution model, what is, you know, how does that impact how consumers are engaging with the products and using the products? Except, except, am I are on Nicely the right put. Sort of lines? There? No, you are absolutely right. Nicely put. And the reason we're doing that is because, and I, and I realized this when I left the media industry for a while and looked back on it as CEO of a sales and marketing department. And I had a marketing department coming to me saying, this agency has presented this idea and they, they they want to move with this strategy and this is what it's going to cost. I started to ask the questions that probably all clients ask, which is, okay, nice idea, but what's it going to do for our business? And how has anyone modeled the impact this is going to have on the short term versus the long term? Mm. 
and then and then you start to realize that paid media and running advertising is only one part of marketing as you quite rightly said there so um all businesses have a baseline of sales that have nothing to do with advertising mm. advertising adds and contributes obviously pulls people through from awareness and consideration through the funnel but it i think too many people in the agency world are too myopic to think that what they do is the most important part of marketing whereas and i often tell my people and i did presented this at our global conference last year I, my guess is that a CMO spends less than 5 to 10% of their time thinking about media, about paid media, hmm. because they're thinking about orchestrating change within their organization. They're thinking about how do we acquire customers and retain them. They're thinking about, should we change, to your point, should we change our pricing? And hmm. is, our, is, our, is our customer experience optimal now that we've got other competitors coming in, changing the the customer experience benchmark. Sure. There's all of those things out there, which agencies are quite happy to just go, la, 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 la. <laughs> you need to spend another five million pounds on Google and more. it'll all be fine. <laughs> Don't worry and about other, it. And the other thing that agencies are really bad at, because their model is built on taking a percentage of money, is telling a client whether something is working and where they should cut spend or where they should move money around. And that's what clients really want, which is why a lot of them are going, maybe we should do this ourselves. Because I'm not saying that the talent doesn't exist in a lot of agencies in holding groups, but nobody wants you to go back and say, the client was going to spend 10 million in our first forecast. We've now reduced it to five, but the client's really happy. I wonder what the holding group CFO is going to say to you. (laughs) Doesn't take genius to work it out, right? Um, So if you're paid to drive value creation, if your remit is to actually help a client kind of take cost out or find more value, and that's more of a consulting operation, then it's it, you don't have those biases in terms of yeah. wanting to wanting to suggest or focus on certain parts of the marketing funnel all the time because that's your revenue model right anyone with a hammer looks at every problem as a nail right you've touched on so many things there that you know we can spend days on but like you know what what you've said kind of goes back to the whole agency compensation debate which has been going on in in the in the agency world for decades right should the agency be compensated based on performance instead of just here's my fee Mm. And I'm going to deliver you this, you know, this, because in the early days of advertising, you know, Madison, look, there was a lot wrong with that world, uh, the Don Draper world, but agencies and clients had that relationship, right? Where by the, you know, the agency would be compensated based on the performance of the ad or the performance of their campaign. We've kind of moved away Mm. from that now. And I guess there are a lot of challenges with doing that because, you know, things aren't as easy to uh sort of attribute roi to these days yeah but that's the problem you know but that that is the problem but there are still ways around it i mean where do you stand on the whole compensation agency compensation and tying remuneration to performance look i mean it should be much more orientated to that as an industry we should be much more orientated to that because ultimately advertising and marketing is is only useful if it helps drive growth of a business or it helps to retain customers and upsell them it the output should always be 
revenue or greater profitability. You called out the challenges, right? The challenges are quite often, and I've been in these big discussions on big contracts when I was at Havas, that we would say, yeah, let's do it on performance. Quite often the client or procurement would come back and go, yeah, we want to, but you're asking us to give you this kind of data and we're not sure we can actually give you that kind of data with this regularity. So I think the client community needs to evolve to be able to share more openly data for a service partner to be able to move to that performance model the problem <laughs> the problem you've got with that goes to my back to my previous point is where there isn't trust a client's not going to share that level of data and there is still a lot of distrust from a lot of clients around the opaqueness of the media buying model i found it so enlightening being an independent consultancy how much easier it is to get brands to share with you very sensitive customer performance pricing data versus being in a holding group Interesting. where we would really struggle to get that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not tiring every holding group with the same brush. I'm just saying that there is, there is a concern yeah. that maybe the holding group might use that data for their own advantage yeah. or they may not use, they may not, may not protect it or keep it, you know what I mean? So hey, but it if, happened, you don't, if you, you don't know. have trust, if you yeah, it did happen. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so so it comes from somewhere. So what so what I'd say is, as, as with as with most things um, in life, getting to a perfect model and just going it's all going to be performance versus mm. it being kind of pain for time, I think is a little bit of a, a little bit too optimistic. Not not least because actually. The service that's provided by agencies should be seen as a professional service. And I think that's another challenge is if you put agencies up against lawyers uh, or other kind of professional services, that they can always hold their fees. And they'll very rarely are they asked to reduce their fees because they're seen as providing something that's high value, that is expertise that can't be got ever anywhere else. Now, in reality, the same is true of media and creative. The reason brands go to agencies is because they need support, right? They don't understand that the landscape of media or how to build a brand as well as agency. So the agencies deserve to be paid properly for the value they bring. However, just this big fat retainer model or commission on spend model that we've had for decades is, it is no longer fit for purpose. And what I think agencies at least need to do is show a willingness to shift and change and adapt those models rather than just trying to kind of protect it and defend it, which is, I think, what generally happens. Unless it gets brought up, no one brings an alternative commercial model to the table. And I think that's where the frustration comes from, because brands are in tough spots after the kind of pre-recession that we might have just been through for the last 18 months everyone's in a tough spot unless you're a d2c e-commerce amazon google facebook so they 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 need their partners to actually understand that and to work in a way rather than just coming back with the same fat fees and there are certain parts of the agency community that are worse than others Um, because i would actually say media agencies in general and digital agencies have adapted more to this creative agencies still quite happy to work on the retainer model um, and to work on the timelines which involve months and months before any value is ever provided back 
and sending nice. ten sending ten people to a meeting when actually maybe only two people are needed, right? And okay. I think that is changing, but it's changing a lot more slowly, in my opinion, than it has in the media and digital side. Now I'm slightly biased because that's my background, but I hear lots of CMOs tell me it, so it must be true. Mm. <laughs> Paul, I've got a million questions that we don't have time to get through. We're going to have to get you back on the show because this has been absolutely fascinating. A couple more questions before we get into our favourite questions at the end of the, in, of the interview that we ask everyone. Mm. You've got a podcast yourself, which you've which is fantastic, by the way, Time for a Reset podcast. Tell us about like why did you set it up? What's the intention behind it? What kind of guests do you get on the show? Tell us about the podcast. So... I've talked to, I guess I've touched on quite a lot of the themes today. I'm a believer that we're in a space and a time right now where it's never been more exciting to be in the marketing space. There's so much interesting stuff happening, so much opportunity. So it is a time for brands to hit reset because the way models have been built for the past, whether that's investment models, operating models, commercial models, those things all need to be re-looked at because they're no, no longer necessary or optimal um, for, for the worlds that we live in, where more budget has shifted towards digital, more budget has shifted towards um, kind of being able to map short-term versus long-term. And by the way, you need to be able to do both. You need long-term and short-term, and you need to be able to measure across the two. So Time for a Reset was really created for me to have broader conversations with CMOs or founders or CEOs about the role that marketing plays in business. Like how important is it? Are marketeers adapting to the needs of the CEO and investors in terms of the contribution? Are you able to map marketing's contribution to management accounts? Are you able to say that the CMO is leading transformation in the organization? And I have that kind of heated debate with CMOs around the importance of an evolution of marketing in its in its contribution to business. And to be honest, that that has always been what's fascinated me about being in this career. Um, from the early days, my purpose wasn't just to get, get to a place to change the culture. It was to be able to be a great partner to brands and businesses who wanted expertise, right? And to me, the, the best accolade I can get, ever get is from a client or a customer telling me that you really, you or your business really provided great value to us because you helped us do x or move us from here to here that's the biggest accolade not winning agency of the year not winning x or y new business pitch although all of those things are important it's actually getting exceptional customer feedback or nps scores that really kind of fires me up every day based on the cmos that you speak to on the show and just who are friends of yours yeah what are the most common challenges or concerns that they are sharing with you that are different to 12 months ago, two years ago? Like, where where are we now? What are the main challenges on the CMO's mind? That's a really good question. So one of them is definitely, what should our operating model be? And that doesn't mean they're saying we want to in-house. It, it's saying the world looks very different. Technology has democratized digital before we had to go to specialists because there was no other way. Should we build this ourselves or should we partner or should we build or should we build parts of it? So there's a big conversation about the operating model. 
Um, I'd say the second, the second um, big part of the conversation is all around data and insight. And most brands are not using the customer data that they've got well enough, and they're not connecting it with third-party data, lifestyle data, other transactional data to really enrich their understanding of their audiences. And of course, the underbelly of that is the fact that you've got cookies disappearing when Chrome uh, kind of makes that move probably some point next year, although it looks like it might be delayed. So there's a lot of conversation around that. And then I think the third one is what is the right mix of what a brand would call upper funnel and lower funnel? So what's the right mix of awareness and consideration driving activity that isn't all paid media, it'll be lots of other things, versus investment into social search programmatic, which drives my short-term metrics, which my CFO loves. Like, how do you navigate getting the right balance? Because we should be in a world where marketing is a lot more scientific than it was a year ago, five Mm. years ago, definitely 50 years ago. Mm. But one of the biggest challenges is attribution, and you called it out earlier, attribution and measuring true incrementality has arguably never been harder because you've still got a ton of investment in TV and out of home and kind of other other traditional channels. And then you've got a lot of investment in digital analytics, which is all based on last click. How you fuse those two worlds together is not easy. You need a combination of econometrics. You need a combination of multi-touch attribution. And then you need to run experiments like incrementality tests and experiments and then look at the knowledge across those different kind of measurement models and fuse them together over time to inform how your modeling kind of shows the contribution that media delivers out the back end. So those would be some of the key themes that um, I hear again and again. And to be honest, another reason I do time for a reset is I'm listening to the customer feedback and then we mm. adapt the CVE proposition on in, mm. a, in a kind of iterative ongoing way. As we hear those things, we go, okay, well, maybe we need to change or adapt the way that we're going to market with some of our services, or we need to help provide a service to a client that that solves that problem. Because ultimately, we're here to solve pain points and to help kind of solve problems. Yet, too often, I think people in agencies think they're here to book media or to deliver a slightly better cost per acquisition. And yeah, that's important, but that's that's a conduit to something else. I always say to my team, step back and think about where did that brief come from? What would the board have briefed into someone on the board table that ended up with that brief getting down to the person that gave it to you? Why do you think they're asking for that? Think about that for a a while before you jump into the solution, because yes, they want more customers and a lower cost per sale. But why do you think that is? What else value could we be providing? What other insight might they need to be able to understand whether this is an effective strategy or not. So, yeah, I think there's so, there's so much opportunity out there um, for, for different service models. And, like, I mean, CV is just one of them. There are lots of interesting companies sprouting up, doing different things, providing different value to marketeers because marketeers want independence, they want true expertise, and they want people that are flexible and agile enough to, to adapt with them. Super, super fascinating. I wish we had I wish we had more time so we can drill into this in a, in a lot more detail. I mean, the main thing that I'm I'm taking away here really is is I guess the complexity of the landscape and the complexity of options that are available to the brand marketeer today, which is very different to the landscape of, you know, 10, 15, 30 years ago or what have you and navigating that 
and having partners that can really help you take you on that journey is is crucial yeah um super super fascinating um we could we could spend a few more hours kind of dissecting all of this stuff let's get into all of our favorite questions now these are the questions that i ask all of my guests so i'm really excited to ask you some of these as well who is the person behind the brand sort of questions yeah first one tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience yeah so um i think probably my my standout example here um would be when i took a call with some of my senior management team at Havas when youtube was seen to be putting advertisers next to, next to some inappropriate content um i took the call that we should pull all our advertising um, we had bbc and o2 as big clients at the time and both of them had seen some rather concerning things so we pulled the money um and I took the call that that was the important thing to do at that point while we waited for a response from Google, which was very slow to come. And I, I, it was one of those instinctive moments that I took that decision without consulting my HQ, without going too deep into it. And it created a bit of a ruction with our HQ, with um, the, the guy that was running Havas at the time, because he felt that we should have discussed that before um, that decision was made, which I fully appreciate. And the, the issue was that this very quickly kind of went from trade press coverage to national press coverage. The only one and only time I've had my name on the front page, <laughs> front page of the national newspapers, because Paul Frampton was talking about um, this particular issue. Now, I, I learned from it because I learned that sometimes you can go too fast. right? And I'm, I'm one of those people that works at pace um, and I like to go 150 miles an hour. But I learned from that and several other things in my career that if you're driving 150 miles an hour in the outside lane and there's nobody in your wing mirrors, you're failing. That's not leadership. That's a failure of leadership. So mm. being the smartest person in the room, being the person that's moving furthest ahead is not the best mm. way for a leader to be. Um, ironically, that particular episode around YouTube became six months later something that Havas talked about as customer centricity and, and an example of how we really put our clients first so it wasn't all bad but it put me into a very difficult kind of position with um kind of senior leadership within Havas, which I, going back in time i probably would have done it differently hmm, really interesting just just on that actually um because of all of the issues around privacy and the issues around sort of I guess, bullying online, there have been many calls for large brands to just pull their advertising budgets from right. uh, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and what have you, thinking that it's actually going to have an impact on these Goliaths. Right, right. And actually, you know, what, what the pushback from that has been actually, you know, the revenue coming from, you know, a large brand, an FMCG brand, or even a Unilever based on the total advertising revenue that a Facebook or a Google gets, it's actually quite incremental. So it wouldn't have such a, a large impact on their business as what people are sort of thinking. Right. And no, totally. Does that, does, you know, does that, does that ring true with you? You know, well, if, if you... I mean, yeah, you, you only need to look at the Facebook earnings locomotive to know that if, even if 50 big FMCGs pull their advertising, it doesn't have a massive impact on their revenue or earnings because they've got such a long tail of advertisers these days, as do Google. However, if, if a volume of advertisers or a quantity of advertisers get together to make a point like that, it does 
it does start to make a point that can't be avoided. Um, and I think it, frankly, it's only by people taking a stance, the people that have the checkbooks, the brands, and or the agencies representing the brands, who can actually kind of change things. Otherwise, things carry on the same. And the, the, the slightly saddening thing is, I mean, you look at Facebook and you look at all of the issues and challenges and concerns. I mean, it's not just to do with ads in the wrong places and privacy, right? There's all sorts of political concerns and societal mm. concerns and everything. Yet, it seems that Zuckerberg, anyone that internally tries to, that wakes up to their own principles and goes, I need to change that, Zuckerberg just t- takes them out and moves them out of the business, right? That just seems to be what happens. Mm. Um, and any time a founder that has come in suddenly says, well, you did say that we weren't going to do this and we were going to protect our users on WhatsApp or Instagram, or they've all, they're all gone, right, these people. <laughs> um, so it's it's not a coincidence that, I mean, the guy's a megalomaniac and he only believes his own his own view and he may claim that he cares about advertisers and he wants to change the world, but there, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of evidence that yeah. suggests their strategy will follow that. And and you're yeah. right, the brands the brands matter, but they don't matter. I mean, as 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 Zuckerberg told the senators, we make money from advertising. Um, the brands should matter a lot more to him than they do. But I think it's because of the the scale of the business mm. across the whole world and the composition of that revenue into small, medium size, mid-market, and then enterprise businesses, yeah, a big client like Unilever going, we're going to stop for a while, hurts them. But it doesn't hurt them as much enough that it will kill them. I mean, look at the amount of fines that they just wear and just carry on. They get, We see a £5 billion fine and we go, that's going to wake them up, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't when, when it's a, when it's Unreal. a dot, when it's a when it's a rounding error in your business, a rounding error. It doesn't matter, does it? Right? It's like it's like Crazy. a it's like a multi billionaire giving giving a billion to charity. It looks like an incredibly generous thing, but you have to put it in context of the wealth that that person has. <laughs> Unreal, and that's why there's been so many calls to break up these these massive companies who who really are operating like as nations, um, yeah. you know, with the resources that they have at their disposal, with the impact that they're able to have on the world and society. It's just, it, you know, it's crazy to think that these things are just unregulated and just at the whims of the founder CEO who right. could be a sociopath for we know. We have no idea. Right. right. Yeah, reg- regulation can't keep up with it. That's the problem, isn't it? Because it's also... It's also new. I, I do feel like what's happening in the US with DOJ and some of the kind of Texas state kind of stuff against Google, I, I do feel like that's building towards a place where Google will either themselves make a decision about breaking up certain things or they will be forced to. And obviously, the, in the last couple of days, the European Union has announced that they're going to do an interrogation into YouTube and the fact that it's the only the only way you can buy into that inventory is through Google's platform DV360. So, I mean, these things take forever. I mean, I think that the Texas case won't report back until 2023. So it's not like it's going to change tomorrow. But I do feel like in the next three to five years, there will be some significant change because even if these governments and regulation catches up with where Google and Facebook are today, in five years' time, that still hopefully means that they can make some decisions that take away some of the ability for these guys to just completely own and operate across 
the whole kind of value chain and to have a monopoly, which is what all of these all of these regulators are meant to stop yeah. happening as you don't allow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at what happened to the telcos in the US and how they got kind of all that all got broken up and changed and look at Microsoft and how Microsoft yeah. was regulated yeah. and how they fought against it. Eventually, eventually, Microsoft had to concede. Um, so I do think there will be change. I just think it's not it's not coming fast enough. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction. What books have what books do you go back to time and time again? What books have shaped the way you think about media advertising and the world that you're in? Yeah, good question. So my my, my single favorite book on leadership is a book by Steve Radcliffe called Leadership Plain and Simple, which is exactly that. And I love it because it's short. I think it's only about 150 pages, maybe even less. But it's also in plain language. There's far too many leadership books that are written by professors or academics or Mm. kind of have been structured in a way that makes leadership this inaccessible thing. But leaders leaders are born and created at all ages with different levels of experience and backgrounds. So leadership lessons can be told by many different people. And Steve Radcliffe just talks about this really simple leadership model, which is FED future engage deliver set an inspiring future destination i touched on that earlier because i use that inspiration then engage people let them play with the concept involve them in it help them co-create let them have some time with it and then and only then can you deliver whereas most organizations jump from here's the future now go and deliver it (laughs) or or they don't even have an inspiring future plan or a, a purpose or a clarity of vision they just say go (laughs) but but the bit that almost every company doesn't give enough time to is that E in the middle, the engagement Mm, piece, which mm. is why I'm such a big believer in culture, inclusivity, bringing people into conversation. So that, that's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I, I I love blink by Malcolm Gladwell because it reminds me that I should trust my gut instinct. Mm. And I go back to it to remind myself of that because I think you start to question yourself sometimes. Although, hasn't that been contradicted by the new behavioral science stuff that's come out recently around the only reason why we have intuition is because it's experience and experience is the thing that like, you know, it builds up in us over years. And when we experience a a similar encounter, we go, ah, this is what we should do intuitively. But actually, it's because of the years of experience and history that we've built up. It it doesn't just naturally just come. Yeah, good point. Good point. I am. So I just dis- discredit the blink. <laughs> uh, that is an area that I'm trying to learn a bit more about behavioral science because I- I'm not an expert in it, but I am reading a bunch Neither of things I. and I might go and do a course on it. Because they- they- yeah. I mean, if you're in this industry, social sciences are such an important thing to engage it's everything. with. Everything. Yeah, massively. Amazon, were you going to say one more book? No, carry Okay. I was going to go somewhere, I, I, but let's move on. because I, I I'll might discredit that one as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be discredited again, Nathan. <laughs> um, all right, uh, last couple of questions and I'll let you go. Amazon Prime or Netflix, what are you watching or streaming that's good? So at the moment, I'm watching Sweet Tooth. Oh, okay. Um, which is... My wife's watching that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an, an interesting kind of series. I mean, I mean, it's actually very, it's very pertinent right now because it's about... Uh, a, a kind of worldwide <laughs> pandemic actually but there are these hybrids which are kind of a, a kind of slightly weird only netflix could do this um fusion of animals and humans that are born and obviously they're ostracized in community and it's about kind of how that plays out and 
like friendship and fear and stuff like that. I love those. Stuff. I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead. Mm. So I love, I love okay. those. That, I, I love, I just love, I love, I love like apocalypse type things and zombies. End of the world they're, scenarios. They're just good entertainment. But then when it's got some kind of real great characters and storytelling around sure. it, rather than just being mm. crass kind of crap that you might turn on to mm. watch for a while. Um, and then the other one is Elite, mm. actually. Um, I watch a lot of Spanish drama on netflix i mean i loved la casa de papel de papel um, which is um money heist in english which was the if, i don't know if you've seen that okay. but that is yes. one of the best sister, things on netflix sister loves that yeah um, it's really good the, you've got a spanish background haven't you well no actually my wife is colombian so i don't but um i have Your a lot of colombian. spanish okay. culture in my life um right and we have a place in spain so i spend quite a lot of time there um so she, right. she got me into watching this elite um, thing which is fairly similar to 13 reasons why but set in spain and kind of plays around with the whole issues of wealth versus poverty and kind of okay. how that create how that creates um huge kind of issues within kind of young people growing up and then around kind of being being gay versus heterosexual and all of those issues it's, it's and, and it, it's very similar to Thirteen Reasons Why. Okay, uh, which which I found. Well, I I remember I found my daughter was watching before I was watching, and then I was like, I have to watch this to understand this because there's yeah. so much of Ferrari about this. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I I have to say, Netflix is my go-to pretty much most of the time. If I'm not if I'm not working or reading or m- meditating or listening to a podcast. Hmm. I hardly, other than sport, I hardly turn on anything other than Netflix. These Interesting. Days. More than Amazon Prime, more than Disney Plus, yeah. more than BBC iPlayer. Yeah, very rarely use Amazon Prime. Um, I mean, there are a few things on there that I watched. Fear the Walking Dead's on there, so I had to get it on there. But um, <laughs> Disney Plus is on all the time because of the younger kids. Um, because the kids, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I'm not massively into Marvel or Mand- all of that Mandalorian. Kind of Mandalorian. Into, I keep hearing great things about it, but I've never really got to get into, into Loki. So. Yeah, Loki, okay. I hear lots of good things about, <laughs> but I'm. It's just not really ever been my thing, so I don't go there for it. But I'm, okay. I, I'm intrigued about Loki because I hear such good things about it, so I might try that. Yeah, you're more of an end of the world apocalyptic. <laughs> more of an, yeah, more of a depressed <laughs> end of the world pandemic. Yeah, crazy type of view. Yeah, the world is. Ending. I don't know where those. All right, last last couple of questions. What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person who asks you for advice to start their career in a media agency or a creative agency? What advice do you give them? Be insatiably curious. But work out where to focus your curiosity because curiosity that's like just totally un- misguided or, or unclear can not can sometimes not help. Um, and be yourself. Like you'll be, and I nearly fell into this trap early in my career. Um, the advertising industry is a very particular industry, and there are there are lots of very cool, very smart very creative people and sometimes you look at yourself and you go am i one of those people and you think i need to change or i need to be like these people to mm. fit in and it's not mm. just the avatar industry right that happens everywhere mm. but i would strongly strongly recommend that everyone be themselves because otherwise it creates so many issues mental health issues kind of other issues later on in your career um and i, I actually it wasn't intrinsically linked and we won't go deep on this, but my, my first marriage, 
I, I realized that actually I was one person at work and a different person at home. And actually mm. my truer self was probably how I'd, where I'd found myself at work. And that led to me kind of realizing that I had to kind of go through, um, go through divorce, which wasn't a nice part of my, um, nice part of my life, but um, it, it was the, the right decision, but it was because I'd kind of, almost like pretended to be I'd had had one self here and another self Mm, here and that's exhausting to try and keep those things up Um, and I know we all I I know everyone does that to a certain extent with Mm. friends and family and Mm. the real people they care about versus work but I'd really really suggest don't let that happen don't don't fall into that trap early Mm, really interesting I I came across that idea just this week actually that everyone Mm. has that um their home self and then their work self and actually Mm. because of the pandemic um well what we were doing before we 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 commuted to work so that 15 20 minutes that hour right that was the transitional period where you move from your you know daddy self your home self husband self to your work self and you needed that time to process almost like superman transforming on the train and becoming this new person and then on the way back you then reverse back into your home self but we needed that commute time to be able to do that because over the last 12 months we haven't had that commute time there's been this blurring of like i'm at home i'm this home person but i'm almost all this dad person and it's just like what is that about yeah i i feel that very much actually what you just talked about because i will i i work because my uh my bosses and the board that i'm on for good ways in the us i often work quite late um, for US calls, I'll maybe start later in order to do that. But often I'll walk out at like seven thirty at my office, haven't finished a call, and hear the kids in the bath. And I literally walk ten meters from lift office into there because I want to see them as they're getting bathed and going to bed. But I feel like I can feel in my body that my body is saying you need some, sp- you need to decompress before yes. you do this because going straight to bedtime, which is never the least. Never the never the least stressful <laughs> part of the day anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, these parents that say, I love putting my kids to bed. It's like, yeah. I, I love seeing them, but the, 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 the process. That they, yeah, the process is generally <laughs> horrific. Yeah, save me. Yeah, T- totally. Oh, okay, and my final question, I could have spoken to you all day. We're going to have to get you back on the show. And my final question, Paul, what is it you know about the world of media, advertising, and marketing today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I guess it's probably that it was only one sliver of the marketing ecosystem. Because mm-hmm. it was my exposure to mar- media to me was marketing, right? Because it's where I came into it. So um, I, I would probably say that the, the, the only other comment or the thing that's in my head as you asked me that question, which isn't a direct answer to that question, would be, I, I wish I wish I'd have known at the beginning of my career that my identity should not have been so defined by work in my early, early life. Because for me, my identity was very much driven around how successful I was and what my role was, my status, all of that kind of thing. And obviously, over time, you realize that that stuff's really not that important. And actually, it's about the experiences you have, the people you touch, um, and the value you bring to people's lives. Um, And so people don't remember, this is probably quite a nice way to finish, people don't remember the PowerPoint um, documents you wrote. They don't remember 
the the times you spent late in an office. They probably don't remember the RFPs you filled out or even the uh, thought leadership articles that you got published in campaign. That they remember how you made them feel and they remember how you helped them in their career. And mm. that is not just for people that work into you. That's also for people that you work for. I make it a very big part of what I do that I always keep in touch with any CMO I've worked with when they've left. And I try and help them navigate finding a new job and everything like that, because I think that's where you bring real value to someone is you show mm. it's not a transactional relationship. It's I enjoyed working with you. We had a good relationship. Why don't we continue that? Just because you haven't got 30 million pounds to spend with my agency anymore doesn't mean that you no longer matter to me. Mm, interesting. Great place to end. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. Absolute pleasure. No, I enjoyed it. We have been speaking with Paul Frampton. He is currently the president at CVE. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 135 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in media and marketing. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at NathanAnnieBarber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Sarah Spence is our production assistant. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Thomas, we just had a, a long and winding conversation there with Paul Frampton. We touched on everything from the media agency landscape, technology, consultancies. They're an independent consultancy working with some of the biggest brands in the world on their business challenges. Talk about some of the main insights that you took away from the conversation and how do they apply to what you're doing at Account Insight? Yeah, thanks, Nathan. I totally agree that Paul said a lot of interesting things. A really clever guy, no doubt about that. But being today with Control versus Exposed, uh, his new agency after Havas, focusing on, on being independent, focusing on consultancy before media, before tech. And really focusing on, upon the, the, the fact how to, how to orchestrate the marketing investments and securing that the clients, the brands are understanding and, and really uh, taking, taking the, the media landscape in the right way in order to meet the business objectives, making consultancy first and media second or, or media spent second. I find that really intriguing and interesting. And I see a lot of overlaps between um, CVE and, and, and Account Insight because we are very much, we are coming from the media agency as well. Uh, that's where we started, not at Havas, but at Riven uh, years back. So we understand that, that business. And we also understand the complexity in navigating within the tech environment. And as soon as something is new, then, then, then we are on new ground. And that's where we are today. So to be honest, we need to really focus as well a lot of consultancy. We need to be totally frank and honest with the clients, not that we didn't also be aware of that in the past, but, but we really need to, to, uh, to assist and help both agencies and brands in figuring out how to use uh, digital targeting, how to use uh, digital B2B 
activities or programmatic uh, account-based advertising, as we as we call it, or as it's called. Uh, and then it's really a, it's really a matter of figuring out first what you what you achieve, what's the objective, and then secondly, we need to figure out and and we need to come with the honest advice whether our solutions are the right thing to use. Uh, and very often we go back and forth and back and forth, even with the most advanced agencies, to figure out what what's the right thing because none of them are skilled enough to be honest, which is also uh, pause. Uh, starting point with, with CV that, that, that they are really having, uh, a, a hard or a, a large, uh, part of, of, uh, tough and, and high level competences within, within the agency. And, and we need to bring sort of that at the same time. Uh, so it, it's, it's really a matter of combining, uh, the consultancy first, looking at the business objective and then figuring out, okay, is this the right thing to add or not? And, 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 and maybe even the, the agencies coming by and saying, well, we think we should go in that direction and the budget is like this and we should spend like that. And then we need to take together with the agency one step back and say, well, you have to think about this and that. You have to figure out what's actually right for, for, for the business. Um, and, and, and then together we can move ahead uh, first. And this is also why we spend also a lot of time talking with clients directly, uh, make, uh, big brands, uh, either directly or together with the agencies, uh, very often together with the agencies into f- figuring out, okay, what's actually the right thing to do. And maybe account-based advertising is part of the equation and maybe it's not, but we know that it's always a matter of figuring out how to, how to, uh, how to focus on the business objective first. Mm. Uh, and then providing this this uh, consultancy first uh, dimension, and then if our solution is the right thing to add, then we w- will recommend that. But from a sales perspective, I I don't think that we will ever recommend to to uh, to use our, our our platform our model if it's not the right thing to do. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it is about. But it, it takes a lot of competences. It, get, it takes a lot of knowledge to 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 be at that space. And I think it also. This is also why there is need for agencies like uh, CV and uh, and what Paul Frampton is doing now. Mm. It, it, it it takes a lot of experience to be able to to take take one step back and say, okay, what's actually up and down? What's the media landscape? What's the tech landscape? How does how does these compute? How's the how does mm. the connection work uh, with the business? Uh, and then how to uh, how to orchestrate that. Really interesting insights. As you say, a lot of overlap between CV and Account Insight. Thomas, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thank you, Nathan.